ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money. Richard Aidy with you. What are the events and forces that will shape the economy next year? Not just here, actually, but around the world. We'll try to answer that question later in the show. Let's start with some slightly odd behaviour. The government is giving up a bit of power of its own volition. At the moment, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, can veto a decision made by the RBA and he wants to stop having that power. But hang on, isn't the RBA completely independent? Don't the politicians say that every time, the independent reserve bank? Well, yes, they do, and no, it isn't. Peter Martin has written about this in The Conversation. Peter, we'll get to what this power is shortly, but firstly, why is the government giving it up? The government's doing it because the outside review of the Reserve Bank recommended it in April. I think the people on that review, no, no, some of them, don't understand or even probably know of the history, and there's every reason to think that, because they don't refer to the history, to the reasons why the Parliament has an ultimate power of veto over the Reserve Bank in their report. The government would only do this, though, if it suited the government or if the government thought it suited it. Oh, this is the great convenience. The words independent reserve bank, they go together, don't they? Because they're a mantra. You hear it over and over and over. Every time the reserve bank does something that's probably needed by pushing up interest rates but hurts people, the politicians say, the treasurer says, the prime minister Well, of course, uh, I feel people's pain. Uh, The Independent Reserve Bank has done this. There's nothing I can do. They're completely wrong. There's a lot they could do, but it suits them to say the Reserve Bank is independent. And now I think it suits the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and probably the Coalition too, although Angus Taylor hasn't uh, completely declared his hand, to make the Reserve Bank completely independent. Well, and this would be fine. This would yeah. be fine. Except for the possibility that one day the Reserve Bank might do something really bad. It's Unlikely, I, perhaps. I'll come back to that. But I have to say, Peter, until I read your article, I did not know that the government could overrule the Reserve Bank. Yes. <laughs> this was inserted into the Reserve Bank Act. It was the Commonwealth Bank Act originally in 1945. Uh, after a Royal Commission into the Australian banking system and after awful things that happened at the start of the Great Depression. Now, the, the Commonwealth Bank, which was the Reserve Bank, the one institution, had its chairman, its board members appointed by the government. The government gave them directions and then, right at the start of the Great Depression in 1930, The government gave them a direction. It said, uh, we need money for uh, public works, you know, to keep people employed. Keynesianism uh, was uh, a new idea and, of course, it caught on. But the Reserve Bank, the Commonwealth Bank, didn't see it that way. The chairman of the Commonwealth Bank, appointed by the government, wrote to the government, wrote to the treasurer, Ted Theodore, and said, quote, 
the point was being reached beyond which it would be impossible for the Commonwealth Bank to provide further assistance for governments in the future. The Treasurer was uh, livid. Uh, Theodore wrote back saying uh, the, the supremacy of the government in the determination of the financial policy of the Commonwealth was, I am sure, or uh, any attempt to uh, move against that, was never contemplated by the framers of the Constitution. The government had a royal commission uh, after the war, and the Reserve Bank Act was amended. The Commonwealth Bank Act originally was amended to say the government could override it. Uh, Menzies came in. He thought that wasn't quite strong enough. He included uh, a few more clauses that said, yes, the Treasurer can override the Reserve Bank. It became the Reserve Bank. But after doing that, the government had to make a statement to the Parliament within 15 days. The Reserve Bank had to put its case within 15 days, the case that had failed to convince the Treasurer. So there were these checks and balances put in mm. in order to ensure that not only the, the government, but also the Parliament if you like, uh, made a, a final decision. The legislation says that the legislation Jim Chalmers wants to remove has to take responsibility for that decision. So right. it needs to be a major disagreement. So to recap, the Reserve Bank, which is then part of the Commonwealth Bank, and the government of the day fall out at the beginning of the Depression. But the bank wins, doesn't it? And the government backs down, but it's determined that this will not happen again. Yes, and the bank wins at great cost. A lot of people were thrown out of work, particularly on farms in the Depression. These are people who could have been doing public works. This is money that could have been created or lent in the same way as happened during the COVID crisis, and we could have had uh, you know, an early version of JobKeeper. But um, the Reserve Bank board, appointed by the government, saw themselves not as servants of the government, but as servants of banking. So what is the mechanism if the government at the moment, which retains the power under the Reserve Bank Act to overrule the bank, what's the mechanism? What has to happen? The Treasurer has to give a direction. Uh, the Governor-General then uh, gets a, a recommendation from Executive Council, which is basically the Prime Minister, the Treasurer and a few other ministers, and he determines the policy. After that, the Reserve Bank is required to implement that policy, give effect to the policy determined by the order. The Reserve Bank then has to submit a statement, prepare a statement for the Parliament setting out its position. The Treasurer has to submit a statement setting out his position. They're both tabled in Parliament, but the Reserve Bank has to do what the Treasurer said. This has nearly happened once uh, under the government of Malcolm Fraser. What was the circumstance? Uh, Fraser wanted the Reserve Bank to provide extra money for housing. It was in uh, 1982 uh, during a recession. And uh, while this clause has never actually been used, both sides, if you like, started looking up the Reserve Bank Act and uh, Fraser uh, historians say contemplated giving the Reserve Bank a direction. But because it's such a powerful lever, it's both a powerful threat uh, and it's also powerful because it's almost most of the time too powerful to yes, actually yes. be used, right? And the two reached an, an agreement. It's, it's a sort of nuclear button as far as we're concerned. All right. So as you mentioned, Peter, in April, we got the RBA review and the RBA review 
uh, made up of uh, a pretty eminent panel, asked the government to make this change. Now, what, what was their thinking in asking for that? Their thinking was, and I quote the review, if an elected government controls monetary policy, there are risks it might try to run the economy beyond its capacity, you know, create too many jobs, resulting in higher inflation but with no lasting impact on employment. The, the idea was that you can't trust politicians. Yes, that's exactly what it says. Yeah, and, and, and I can understand why this outside review doesn't trust politicians. What I can't understand, Richard is why politicians don't trust politicians. So you, you, you've got the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, wanting to tie one hand behind his back because he can't be trusted. Probably the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, ignoring the history of what Menzies did, uh, wanting to tie a hand behind his back, you know, should the coalition become government, both saying, you can't trust us. Now, if politicians say that, Richard... Do you think we should trust them? It's 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 um, it's self hate, really. It's it's uh, self loathing. We already don't trust the politicians. I I think it's about what you said earlier, which is that this absolute uh, determination to be able to pin things on the bank rather than the government of the day. Now you are not convinced by this decision, are you? No, and I'm in good company. Everyone refers to the deregulation of the Australian financial system, the Campbell Inquiry, in 1981. It examined the idea that the Reserve Bank should be given absolute independence. And it said, uh, in the committee's view, it would amount to the substitution of bureaucratic for political direction and would be inconsistent with the process of democratic government. And that sums up my view. I don't think the, the report Certainly, the report didn't reference the Campbell Committee. It didn't reference this history. Ultimately, Richard, we expect certain things from the government. And much as the government can try to pass the responsibility onto someone else, it won't work. If the power goes off, if the lights go off, it doesn't matter that the electric companies are privatised. We blame the government and we expect the government to fix it. If something goes wrong with the economy, even if... It has tied its hands behind its back and uh, made the Reserve Bank completely independent of uh, any direction from it. We blame the government. Ultimately, the responsibility for managing the economy is the government's. To pass a law saying it's not or, or pretend, as they do every month, that it's not, is it's not even an abrogation of responsibility. It's, it's, it's just plainly wrong. We do hold the government responsible for, uh, not not for little decisions, of course they delegate little decisions, but we do hold them responsible for big decisions that affect us. So is there another concern that one day governments might need the power that they currently have but are trying to get rid of? It's entirely possible, yes, that the Reserve Bank, a Reserve Bank governor might go rogue again. It's happened before. Yes, it's hard to conceive of, but it was hard to conceive of then. You've also got to look at whether the power that the government has has caused any problems. As far as I can see, the um, day-to-day independence that the Reserve Bank has, it has meetings, it, it you know, decides on interest rates, and the, the, you know, the government stays away from that on a day-to-day basis, which is fine works perfectly well. The ultimate power, 
I think, has caused no problem. And I actually think that uh, governments should have ultimate power, or more to the point, the politicians we elect should have ultimate power. Peter, I, I think this is really interesting. I had no idea until I read your piece the other day that this was the case. And, uh, well, we'll see what happens. I suspect the government, with the opposition support, will get its way. Thank you very much for joining us today. Great pleasure. Peter Martin is the economics editor of The Conversation and a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Each year, the London-based weekly The Economist puts out a forward look at the next 12 months. The latest version is The World in 2024. And not only that, it also makes some predictions, 10 or so, about what will shape everything else over the next year. It's edited by Tom Standage, who's with us now. Can we start, Tom, with your mistakes? So the things we got wrong in 2023 were that we, like everybody else at the end of 2022, were very pessimistic about the economy in America and in Europe. We thought there were going to be recessions across the rich world, and they basically didn't happen. So the US economy has been unusually strong in 2023, and Europe's economies, which were expected to go into recession because they were going to have this big energy price shock uh, with the high price of natural gas and all that kind of stuff. Well, actually, it turned out to be quite a mild winter, so that didn't happen either. And there's an old joke in economics, which is that economists have successfully predicted nine of the last five recessions. Yeah. Uh, this is because if you predict a recession, you're always going to be right, because there'll always be one eventually. And of course, Australia is the most famous example of this, where you didn't have one for 20-something years, right? So the timing about when you think it's coming is really important. So they may come along in 2024, but that's a different kettle of fish. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to 2024. Let's get to it now, actually, because what surprised me, I had not realised this until I read the piece, was that there'll be more than 70 elections uh, next year in countries home to around 4.2 billion people. That's a huge news cycle there. It is. And we think, having done lots and lots of number crunching and fact checking for the last few months, we think it's the first time in history that most people in the world live in a country where there's going to be a national election next year. So in some respects, that's a sort of watershed for for democracy. And that's the first time in history that that's been more than half the population, mm. which is 8.1 billion. So on the face of it, that's a big, big deal. However, you look a bit more closely at it, an awful lot of those elections are are not really democracy. And it's a reminder that there's more to democracy than voting. And the kind of really obvious examples are places like Russia. There's going to be a presidential election in Russia uh, next year. We all know who's going to win because he always wins. And then similarly, if you look at somewhere like Rwanda, Paul Kagame has been in charge of Rwanda for a very long time now. Mm. Last time he won the election with 99% of the vote. And uh, it's probably going to be a similar sort of margin in, in 2024. So, you know, there's the appearance of an election, but actually it's not really democracy. And so we have a nice chart that sort of shows you this. And uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit has this democracy index where it looks at all these elections around the world and it grades democracy, gives them a mark out of nine. Nine is a full democracy like Britain. And then there's flawed democracies like the US, for example. And then there's, you know, completely authoritarian places that pretend to have elections, but actually it's it's you know it's a complete sham. Mm. And if you look at it that way, there's a large quantity of voting happening, but there's a difference in quantity and quality. Yes. Well well let's let's talk about the election that will probably matter more than any other, which is the US presidential, in just under a year from now, Tom. 
the ramifications of this will be felt everywhere. Yes, there's going to be a few tens of thousands of voters in a few states in the US that determine who the next president is. And that is going to have huge global repercussions on all sorts of levels. The most obvious ones being, you know, what happens with the war in Ukraine, because Donald Trump essentially wants to pull the plug on on aid to Ukraine. Uh, he says he can end the war in a day. And, and we all know what that means. And it would end in a way that Russia gets to keep everything that it's got already. And then there are other ways that, you know, this, this matters. He's talking about on trade policy, imposing tariffs. He's, he wants to impose tariffs on imports to the US, and, and that would be a, a massive thing as well. And then he also, we're not quite sure where he stands on China and what would happen if there was a crisis in Taiwan. And there is this theory among China watchers that there's a window of vulnerability in the late 2020s where China might think this is the time to make a move on Taiwan because our economy is slowing. And at the same time, America's investments in the Pacific haven't really borne fruit yet. So, you know, it's only going to get harder. We should make the move now. And if you believe that theory, then whoever is elected president in November 2024 may be the president that has to deal with the crisis over Taiwan and potentially go to war with China. And we get very mixed signals from Donald Trump on this because yes. on the one hand, he talks about being strong and being tough against China. But on the other hand, he's clearly not in interested in defending other countries around the world. He sees it like a sort of mafia protection racket. He's like, why should we defend, you know, places like Ukraine or Japan or any of our allies elsewhere in the world? What's in it for us? And of course, what's in it for supposedly, you know, the leader of the free world and a beacon of democracy is protecting freedom of democracy. But that seems not to matter to Donald Trump at all. He doesn't seem to be particularly invested in democracy. So mm. there are all of these ramifications and the inauguration of the next US president doesn't happen until January 25. Um, it casts this enormous shadow over the whole of 2024. Now, one of the things you predicted last year, Tom, is China's growth is slowing and it, and it, and it is slowing. And there's been discussion for some time about whether China will get old before it gets rich. But this is now also resulting in potentially a second Cold War. Well, I think we are in a second Cold War. I think that's pretty clear. We have these two blocks, the Western bloc and the and the Chinese-led bloc, which now has this sort of weird alliance with Russia and sort of North Korea and Iran as well. And we sort of resisted the Second Cold War framing for quite a while because it's a very different situation from what happened in the original Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union because they weren't economically linked at all. And uh, it's a very different situation this time around. We are ideologically opposed to China in lots of ways and disagree with China in lots of ways over things like the status of Taiwan, for example. Um, but at the same time, we are very, very coupled to China when it comes to economics. So, you know, I've got my iPhone here and there, you know, it's assembled in China, uh, it's designed in, in America, and the, you know, the processor chip comes from Taiwan, and the camera comes from Japan, and the memory chips come from South Korea. And this is the the reality today that we rely on global supply chains. And so we we hear a lot about decoupling and how in order to protect ourselves in the West, we need to become less reliant on China. Companies need to decouple and take China out of their supply chains. That's actually really hard to do because there's a lot of things that China does better than anyone else or only only does. And so you, we see companies doing things like moving some production to India or, or Vietnam, for example, but they're very often still reliant on raw materials or components that are coming from China. So it's it's a much easier thing to say than to do, to, to say you're going to decouple from China. Exactly. Another thing you touched on last year was, was a faster transition towards renewable energy and uh, what with the Russian war in Ukraine, what this did with Russian oil and gas resources. This year we've seen OPEC flexing its muscles and pushing up the price again and that these things will drive a shift to renewables 
And this will redraw the energy resources map. So for the past few years, we've been used to the idea that there are resources that we need, oil and gas, and there are certain parts of the world that provide them. So sitting here in Europe, you know, we have a certain amount of uh, of oil and gas that that, uh, that we get from the North Sea, but actually Europe was very reliant on Russia, and it was also very reliant on imports from the Middle East. And we remember the, the oil shock of 50 years ago, when there was an embargo on oil exports from the, from the Middle East and, and had global consequences. So this idea that sort of where the oil and gas is, is supremely important in economics and in politics has, has been with us for a long time. And we're now entering this different regime where actually it's other resources like lithium, like copper, like nickel, that are the things that we need in order to transition to a clean energy system uh, and electrify everything and so forth. And where those resources are is a very different picture. And that is starting to make itself felt in geopolitics. And in particular, you know, part of it's the decoupling story with China. So a lot of lithium is processed in China, a lot of batteries are manufactured in China. So we're seeing countries around the world building their own battery factories so they don't have to bring them in from China. But it's also, you know, where are these other resources and, and can we get to them, even if we are in a conflict with China, can we find other sources of them? So I think most people are familiar with the idea that Chile has a lot of lithium, but actually there's lithium in all sorts of other places. So there was a big find of it in um, Iran recently. That's probably not much use for, for those of us on the sort of Western side of the Cold War divide. There was also a very big find in the continental United States. And then, you know, there are other providers like New Caledonia is a big provider of nickel. And most people have never even heard of it. Mm. And then there's lots of copper in Pakistan. So the point is that the, the parts of the world that, that we suddenly care about as a result of this energy transition and the resources where they are, are a completely different set of countries. And not only are they a different set of countries, they're very often countries that aren't aligned in this new Cold War. And so one of the factors that we are seeing is sort of wooing these middle powers. Another thing we may see in 2024 is the beginning of deep sea mining. So one of the things you could do is is get things like manganese from the bottom of the sea. So it's not so much that the, the map is changing. It is. It's also that the map is changing in unpredictable ways and it hasn't settled down yet. And so that's really something that I think we're all going to become more aware of in the coming years. And I think that process really starts in 2024. Mm. Although, Tom, I have to say, and I'm sure you remember this, I think I did my first story on deep sea mining in 1997. So uh, this this is something that we've talked about for a long time. Oh, absolutely. It's been going on for ages, but there is this crunch point next year where the UN body that is um, in charge of making the rules for this is either going to make the rules and issue them, which will mean that there's a green light, or it's going to refuse to issue them, in which case the leading deep sea mining company says it's going to start anyway to force the UN's hand and just say, go on, take us to court then if you don't agree, because we've been waiting for so long. So I agree with you. It's one of those things like airships that people talk about for years and nothing ever really happens. But um, but I think next year we may actually see some movement on deep sea mining. Now, we touched on this issue of danger of recession as central banks were rising interest rates at the time. You now look a bit more positive for next year because Western economies, as we mentioned, did better than we thought. But you are warning there's still a way to go, Tom. Yes. So the US does look like it's heading for a soft landing. And this is interesting if it happens, because the orthodoxy for decades now has been that if you have high inflation, it's very, very difficult to kill it off. I think there was one previous example, maybe two, where it was possible to kill off inflation by raising interest rates 
without causing a recession. So nearly always you get a recession. And this time around, the US seems to have killed off inflation without causing a recession. You know, that's what people call a soft landing. And it may be because the labour market has been very strong. And that may be a sort of post-COVID effect, because the labour market has obviously shifted quite a lot where more people can work remotely and, and that sort of thing. So it may be a, a one-off again. Who knows? It may be we're in a kind of new world where labour markets work differently. So I think the US looks like it's dodged a bullet. Europe does look like it is in more trouble. And generally, we are in a world where interest rates are going to be higher for longer and where growth is going to be lower. So even if we avoid recessions, we're in a sort of stagflationary world where we have high rates, we have higher inflation than we've been used to for quite a long time, and we have we have slower growth. And so we do seem to be sort of entering a period of, of quite sluggish growth. And then China is really the interesting example to watch here, um, because it's probably going to go into deflation next year. It's certainly growing much more slowly. Mm. Uh, on a quarter by quarter basis, it's actually been outgrown by the US, I think, in the most recent figures, which is extraordinary. Um, and so there's this big question about you know the risk of Japanification in China and whether it enters the sort of long period of very, very uh, sluggish growth that Japan had. We we don't know yet, but, but we should have a lot more evidence of where the, the Chinese economy is going in 2024. And I think the, the main thing that's happening there is that the previous mantra of sort of growth at all costs has been thrown out of the window. And Xi Jinping is being much more ideological, not just about economic growth, but actually about everything. So the big you know, clampdown on the tech industry was ideologically driven. Um, he really does have strong views about the kind of growth he wants and the kind of industries he wants to grow. And the problem is that when you have a centrally run economy where you try to do that, particularly if you're trying to encourage entrepreneurial growth in, in technology and things like that, it tends not to work mm. all that well. Tom, one more, and that's about something that we barely begun to think about in a way a year ago, artificial intelligence, which is clearly moving into another domain, series of domains. What should we be watching out for next year? I think the main thing that's going to change in 2024 is that we've had a lot of talk and a lot of excitement about AI in 2023, and it's clearly made a lot of progress as a technology. And it's not just that it's made progress, it's also become a lot more visible. So ChatGPT is a breakthrough, partly because it uses this new transformer architecture, but also because it's so easy to use. It's got this chatbot interface. So you can use it if you're a coder writing software, you can use it if you want a speech for a wedding, you know, you can use it for all sorts of things. And that has made the technology much more accessible. But I think what we're going to see in 2024 is a transition from uh, sort of talk to action. We're going to see companies actually implementing AI in ways that you know they've they've tried out in 2023, and they'll they'll decide where they actually want to implement it. We're also seeing a lot of movement on the regulatory front. Regulators are saying we need to do something about this. We're not quite sure what, and so there's been a lot of discussion this year. And I think we're going to start to see the beginnings of efforts to actually impose rules and, and regulate AI in 2024. And we'll see whether that works and whether it's the right kind of approach. The thing I would take away from all of this, though, is it's a very exciting technology. I think there's a lot of sort of unnecessary doom and gloom around it. I, for one, am not persuaded by the argument that there are going to be killer robots that come and kill us all. I also don't think that this technology is going to take everyone's jobs. I think it's going to change the way a lot of jobs are done, but I don't think it's going to lead to mass unemployment. And I'm also not, not that worried about disinformation in elections. The big problem we have with elections already is that people will believe straight up lies. They'll believe that climate change isn't real. They'll believe that Donald Trump won the election. Um, they're really not looking at evidence. So being able to fake evidence using AI is 
frankly not going to make that much difference, I don't think. The biggest single difference this makes is it's much easier to write software when you have a sidekick, an AI sidekick. It doesn't replace programmers, it just makes them much more productive. And it makes the sort of middling programmers nearly as good as the best programmers. And so what that does is it permanently accelerates the rate at which companies can develop and improve digital products. And I think that's a great thing because we're used to the fact that some tech companies are very good at this. Amazon and Netflix and Apple, they make good products that work reliably. Whereas other companies tend to be terrible at this. You know, your your bank may have a really terrible app that you have to log in three times before it works, or the software on your car may be a bit flaky or or whatever. Um, and so I think the idea that making software is going to get easier and cheaper and quicker, that's going to be absolutely transformative. And that's going to be a good thing, I think. Well, Tom, we'll be marking your work in a year, of course, when we get you back to talk about 2025. Thank you once again for joining us here on The Money. Great. See you then and happy 2024. Tom Standage is editor of The World in 2024 and deputy editor of The Economist. And that's about it for now. Next time on the show, the government says it's listening to the Pacific, but it's not listening about this thing. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Kate MacDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.